The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here are your top five at five. We begin with Fed Chairman Jay Powell giving investors some new reason to worry, failing to reassure markets over rising inflation pressures. Those comments from Powell sending stocks on a really wild ride. The Dow coming off its third down day in a row, futures pointing to a lower open and a black eye for big tech as the Nasdaq enters correction territory for the first time since last year. Now turning to Washington, new delays and new addendums in President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus bill and the movie magic. It's back in the Big Apple starting today. What one theater operator has to say about the path forward. It is Friday, March 5th, 2021, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning. I'm Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off your Friday morning with a look at the stock futures right now. All three of the indexes in the red, all down just about a half a percent in the early trade. Stocks coming off another down day yesterday after Fed Chairman Jay Powell. He failed to reassure investors the central bank would keep surging bond yields and inflation in check. The Dow ending the day down some 300 points after falling more than 700 earlier in the session. The Dow is now down three days in a row and on pace for its second down week in a row. But it's not just the blue chips. The Nasdaq, it's also coming off its third straight losing session. The Nasdaq and the Nasdaq 100 are now off more than 10 percent from recent 52-week highs that were hit back in mid-February. Of course, we call that correction territory. And this week alone, big tech, it's down. Let's look at Tesla down 11 percent. Zoom down 10 percent. Netflix down nearly 6 percent. Amazon down four and a half percent and Apple down two percent. Of course, much of this is pegged to rising bond yields. Let's take a look at the 10 year. We've been watching it very closely all this year right now at about one and a half percent, actually one point five five two. Something to watch. It's up 70 percent year to date. We're going to talk much more about that later in the show. But first, let's go worldwide. Our Matt Taylor, he's standing by in Singapore. Jumana Bersetchi, she's live in our London newsroom. Matt, we're going to kick things off to you on this Friday morning. With, and we're going to talk a little bit about that new GDP target out of China. Yeah, absolutely, Frank. Happy Friday. It wasn't really a happy Friday for the markets across the Asia Pacific. We did have declines right across the board, uh, averaging about a half a percent decline. Japan just down by about 0.2%. But you're right, China is where all of the action was today. The Shanghai market ending the session flat. We did, of course, have the National People's Congress today. And unexpectedly, China put a target on GDP for 2021, seeing growth of 6% this year. The Chinese Premier also unveiled plans to create 11 million urban jobs over 2021, compared to about 9 million over the year 2020. Uh, Looking for a bright spot for you today, there wasn't a lot around. But in Australia, we did have the oil majors moving sharply higher. One named Santos, they're up by about 
4%, of course, on the back of uh, OPEC not doing anything when it came to uh, production cuts. That sent the price of oil up, uh, and we saw some of those mining stocks uh, really move higher as well in Australia. But back to you now, Frank. All right, thanks a lot, Matt. Now turning to the early trade in Europe, Germana Bersetti, she's standing by in our London newsroom. Germana. Hi, Frank. Well, more red on the board today for European bourses. A second day in a row, actually. But for the week, the stock 600 is on track to end the week in positive territory, up about 1.2%. So a very strong start to the week, not so much in the last couple of trading days. FTSE 100, we have down about two-tenths of a percentage point. One stock in particular we're focused on there is the London Stock Exchange, trading as low as 5% lower on the session, despite better-than-expected results. So a bit of a surprising one there. CAC 40 in France, down about 7 tenths. Zetschedax in Germany also down about nine-tenths of a percentage point despite better industrial production data coming in for the month of January. But I want to turn your attention to Italy. There's been a lot of talk about what's been happening there, not necessarily on the financial markets front, but on the diplomatic front. So overnight, Italy have announced that they have imposed a shipment ban of AstraZeneca vaccines going to Australia. This has sparked somewhat of a diplomatic row between Italy and Australia. And of course, it is having an impact on AstraZeneca. Let's just take a quick look at AstraZeneca itself. The stock is down about four tenths of a percentage point. And by the way, it's not just Italy. We've also heard some comments from the French health ministry this morning. They too are considering vaccine export bans as well. So this is a really hardline approach that the EU seems to be taking with AstraZeneca and with the rollout of the vaccine and could have huge implications, of course, from an international perspective. But it just underlines something that we've been talking about a lot, Frank, which is that the Europeans are really struggling with the logistics of rolling out the vaccine. And uh, th- these are one of the measures that they're, com- they're having to come up with to help boost the situation back home. So something we're monitoring very, very closely over here. Yeah, Jumana, those logistics a challenge globally. Thank you for the very latest, you and Matt, both of you. Now turning our attention back to the U.S. and Washington. The Senate taking a major step forward in passing President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Approval could come as early as this weekend. NBC's Tracy Potts joins us now from Washington with that and much more. Good morning, Tracy. Hi, Frank. Good morning, everyone. Well, it came after the Senate clerk spent all night, literally until 2 a.m., reading all 628 pages of this bill. That means this morning, lawmakers will start debating it and offering amendments, the changes that they want to see, while the president focuses on the economy with new unemployment numbers coming out today. Thank you all for coming on in. President Biden gets an update on the economy today and joins a roundtable supporting his American rescue plan as new numbers show how many Americans are not working. The government reports 18 million people are drawing unemployment checks as the Senate considers limiting who gets $1,400 direct payments. Comfortable with having to limit the direct payment? Yes. The clerk will continue the reading. Debate on the American Rescue Plan starts this morning after the clerk... 20 U.S.C. 7544A23 and other related activities. ...read all 628 pages of the bill. The vast majority of this has nothing to do with COVID relief. State and local governments need assistance now to keep uh, cops on the beat, to keep teachers, uh, you know, to keep uh, firefighters employed. Count me out for a $1.9 trillion spin fest unrelated to COVID. Today, Democrats and Republicans offer amendments to add or take away from the plan. I will be offering an amendment to raise the federal minimum wage from $7 
and 25 cents an hour. The president's plan is massively excessive. It needs to be cut back and focused where need is real. The need is real, but lawmakers disagree on how to deal with it. Now, Senate leaders have agreed to cut the debate today from 20 hours down to just three. So, Frank, that means by this afternoon, we should start seeing them introduce those changes. All right, Tracy, thank you for the very latest. All right. Now, turning our attention outside of D.C., let's get to some of the other top headlines this morning. We begin with some vaccine news. Reports this morning that the Pfizer plant being used to produce production, boost production of that company's COVID-19 vaccine has seen repeat quality control violations. An inspection report obtained by Bloomberg shows FDA investigators say they found the company released medications from its McPherson, Kansas-based plant without reviewing quality issues that had come up during testing. The investors also found signs of bacteria and mold at the plant in areas that should have been sterile. Some oil news. Occidental CEO Vicki Holub says she does not believe U.S. oil production will ever return to pre-pandemic levels. In a CNBC Evolve conversation with our own Brian Sullivan, Holub said most companies have committed to, quote, value growth rather than production growth. Because of that shift, Holub does not envision the country returning to production levels over 13 million barrels a day. Crew right now sitting at about $65 a barrel, coming off its highest settle since April of 2019. And Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF is now in the red for 2021. The much-talked-about investor's flagship fund has dropped 24% from its all-time high, including a 5% drop yesterday, wiping out almost $23 billion in gains it had seen since the start of the year. Some of the firm's biggest holdings to see declines, they include Tesla with a 14% drop over the last three days, as well as Square and Roku. All right, much more coming up on Worldwide Exchange. When we come back, some investors are already pricing in the $1.9 trillion stimulus package and looking ahead to President Biden's next policy push. CNBC.com's Pippa Stevens reads the tea leaves for the renewable energy stocks. Plus, much more on tech's move into correction. We speak with one investor who remains as bullish as ever. And later, why rising rates may just be one half of that double whammy hitting the spring housing market. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. 
The $1.9 trillion stimulus package is winding its way through the Senate, and people are already looking ahead to what could be President Biden's next big push. CNBC.com reporter Pippa Stevens is here with much more. Good morning, Pippa. Hey, Frank, good morning. The thinking here is that once the current stimulus package is passed, then the administration can shift its focus to other areas like infrastructure and climate. Of course, both big policy agendas for Biden. He unveiled that $2 trillion climate plan last year that includes heavy investment into renewables, carbon-free power by 2035, net zero emissions by 2050, so just huge growth opportunity ahead. Of course, nothing is certain yet, but these are definitely pillars of his agenda. And there's a lot of opportunities for companies exposed to this theme. So analysts at Barclays this week pegged the total, total addressable market for renewable power generation at $4.5 trillion. They also see a huge uptick in electric vehicle sales from less than 2% penetration today in North America to 46% by 2035. So, Frank, just a lot of growth here for companies exposed to this theme. A lot of opportunity being seen here, but what do people need to know before they invest in this space? Well, the first thing is that it's not necessarily for the faint of heart. So after a monster 2020 that saw clean energy stocks just absolutely skyrocket, they've been hit by some pretty big weakness in recent weeks, of course, along with the sell-off in other growth areas of the market. Uh, but the sources I've spoken with say that the fundamental story remains intact. The earnings growth is there, and a pullback of this nature was to be expected after the absolutely huge gains of 2020. So, Frank, getting down to the specifics, there's a lot of names for investors to have on their radar. Barclays pointed to names like Sunrun and EV supplier Aptiv, while Goldman Sachs was out with a note this week saying that they foresee residential solar growing between 10 percent and 20 percent annually. So they like names like Sonova and Enphase Energy. So just a lot of different ways for investors to play this theme. All right, Pippa, before I let you go, we have to talk about that recent power crisis in Texas. What does that crisis mean for renewables in 2021? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, officials, of course, are still gathering data and figuring out exactly what happened and then how a disaster of this nature can be avoided in the future. But one of the typical short-term impacts we do, we do see after an event like this is an uptick in demand for storage. So customers are saying if they can't rely on the utility company to have the lights on, they want to take matters into their own hands. So I spoke to the CEOs of two publicly traded solar companies in the last week's both of them said that they've seen a jump in storage sales already after that devastation in Texas. And interestingly, the uptick in storage demand is not focused exclusively on Texas. People in other parts of the country are saying they want to ensure power reliability, reliability going forward. So definitely an uptick in solar and storage demand here. All right. Great report there. Pippa Stevens from CNBC.com. We appreciate it. All right. Still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange. It's China to the rescue for one embattled entertainment stock. That name and more stocks to watch coming up when Worldwide Exchange returns. Today's big number, 40 percent. That's the share of all jobs lost to the pandemic since last year were tied to the leisure and hospitality industry, according to the U.S. Travel Association. The current unemployment rate in leisure and hospitality is nearly three times the overall rate. 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on some of the stocks on the move today. We begin with IMAX. Shares down more than 2% after reporting a fourth quarter loss on lower revenue. But a box office resurgence in Asia has helped the company offset a continuing hit to its North American theaters. IMAX says gross profits rose 25% during the Golden Week holiday in China. Turning now to Broadcom, shares are lower this morning after the company's chip sales. They fell just shy of analyst estimates. Software sales beat forecast, as did overall earnings and revenue. Broadcom CEO pointing to strong booking, saying customers are placing orders very far out and it's virtually booked for the entire year. Turning now to Costco, actually down this morning, even after fourth quarter revenue rising 15 percent and same store sales by 13 percent as consumers, they continue to shop for food and household goods during the pandemic. Profit fell below forecasts, partly due to Costco boosting pay for workers to at least $16 an hour and other COVID related expenses. And now for a check on this morning's other headlines outside the world of money and outside of business. A former State Department aide during the Trump administration has been arrested in connection with the pro-Trump riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. That's according to an FBI spokesperson, as well as documents. Federico Klein was arrested yesterday in Virginia, but the FBI would not discuss the case and the court documents did not appear to be online. Documents, however, obtained by NBC News allege that a man later identified as Klein was seen on video assaulting Washington, D.C. police officers and U.S. Capitol police officers. President Biden, he called off an airstrike against a second target in Syria last week due to concerns about possible civilian casualties, a defense official told NBC News. Instead, only one target was bombed in the operation, which came in retaliation for recent rocket attacks on U.S. personnel that the Pentagon blamed on Iranian-backed Shiite militia in Iraq. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier that Biden canceled the strike on the second target at the last moment after the military spotted a woman and a couple of kids in a courtyard at one of the sites. And get ready to kind of spice up your look. Chipotle says it's partnering with cosmetic company Elf for a vegan and cruelty-free makeup line launching on March 10th. Now get this. The brand will sell four limited edition makeup products along with an Eyes Chips Face Bowl at Chipotle. The collection includes a $16 Chipotle eyeshadow palette with 12 colors inspired by classic Chipotle ingredients, believe it or not, an $8 Make It Hot lip gloss, and $10 Extra Guac face sponge set will also be available. (laughs) All right, still ahead, rate risk, Powell's next move, and today's February jobs report, RBC's Tom Porcelli. He breaks down what you need to know before you start your day. And if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, you should just go ahead and do it. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, and other podcast apps. And Worldwide Exchange will be right back. Under pressure, futures pointing to more losses after stocks suffer another sell-off amid rising bond yields. That raid story, also a big deal for the housing industry. We'll talk about the risk heading into the traditionally important spring selling season. Plus, the path forward. The states and cities across the country reopen from the pandemic lockdowns. New York City movie theaters can welcome back customers today. 
We're going to talk to a top exec from a cinema chain. It is Friday, March 5th, 2021, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back. I'm Frank Hollinan for Big Papa, Brian Sullivan. Let's take a look at how stock futures are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. Uh, sneak peek here, all in the red. The Dow indicating it's going to open up uh, much lower, as much as 50 points lower. Uh, I'm sorry, 61 points lower. The S&P and the Nasdaq also in the red. Uh, the major average is coming off a broadly weaker session yesterday with the Dow closing down more than 300 points and the Nasdaq and the Nasdaq 100 going negative on the year and into correction territory down more than 10 percent from recent 52 week highs. The move lower for stocks comes as yields continue to surge. And that's despite Fed Chairman Jay Powell's assurance the central bank would do all it can in its power to keep inflation under control. Not helping Powell's case, energy prices, they continue to rise. Crew coming off its highest settle since April of 2019. Oil right now at about $65 a gallon. Sticking with the markets, tech's weakness and the rising rate impact. Let's bring in Albion Financial Group partner and CIO Jason Ware on the CNBC Newsline. Jason, good morning. Good morning, Frank. So we got to start off. I know you're very bullish on tech, but we also have to see we're also seeing the impact that these rising yields are having on tech. How high do these rates have to go before this becomes more than just a speed bump for tech and the recovery? So that's a really good question. And, you know, there's not an academic answer, though. If you look back over history and you you look at 100 years of market history, what we see is that if you segment out uh, yields, and in particular the 10-year yield uh, with a threshold, when we get above 3%, what we typically see is stocks begin to struggle with yields north of 3%, more so than they do with yields under 3%. So if we are to take past this prologue, I think it's fair to say that that level on the 10-year begins to incite some competition against equities for portfolio manager and allocations to assets. So, you know, that's a fair amount of room from here. We're around 1.5% on the 10-year, so it would have to double before we get to that threshold But I want to make sure that your viewers understand that it's not just about the level of the 10-year as it relates to stocks, but it's how fast we get there. And I think part of the turbulence we've seen over the past few weeks has been because the move in the 10-year yield has been pretty dramatic pretty quickly. So I think as long as the yield rises and lockstep with underlying economic growth and does so in a path that is not jarring, uh, stocks will be okay. Yeah, Jason, right now we're showing a chart, uh, the 10-year rising about 70% just in 2021. Certainly a shock for right. investors. Um, a lot of investors, they're actually rotating out of big tech, big cap tech names like Fang Stocks and also Microsoft. I know you remain bullish, but are there some other companies that you're eyeing that are tied to the recovery but not tech? Yeah, there are. Um, so I, I think what you want to do is if you want to get some leverage to the economic reopening story, which we absolutely believe in, this year, Frank, we think we're going to see a strong boom in the economy as, you know, inoculated consumers come out and spend a wall of pent up savings. And there's also pent up demand that's coming with that. So we will see a pretty strong economy this year. And getting away from the secular growth technology stocks, if you want to have some exposure to that reopening, we think you can do that with high quality companies. So you don't have to go to the epicenter areas with low quality businesses and speculate on the share prices. Instead, you can own a Starbucks which is an experienced business. And yes, the stock's done okay. And they've actually held up their volumes on a relative basis, given everything that's going on. 
uh, with drive-through and with curbside. But nonetheless, that's an experienced business. They want people in the cafes. They want you sitting down on the computer, ordering a latte or two, ordering off the off the uh, food menu, and, and that's not priced in the stock. Visa is another one that we think is a great secular growth story that has all of the uh, durable uh, business parameters you want to have as a long-term investor, visibility into the cash flow streams and earnings, high returns on invested capital, a really wide economic moat. But they also saw their volumes, and in particular their, their cross-border volumes, crushed last year. As the economy reops and we, reopens, we think there's upside in Visa's volumes and therefore the stock. And the stock is, it has a pretty good setup. It hasn't done much in the last 12 months relative to an on-fire NASDAQ and, and, and an S&P that's up 20%. So Visa seems like a nice opportunity as well. Intuitive Surgical and Healthcare, there are definitely ways to get exposure with high-quality businesses. All right, Jason, one last question we got to wrap up in a second, but i got to ask you, uh, I know you're bullish on the recovery and you're bullish on the, the reopening. Why not go for a short-term gain in travel and leisure stocks and things like that? Or why not put it all in on the Russell, which is directly, a lot of people feel, is directly tied to that reopening? Yeah, I, I think the Russell or the S&P 600 is something you can do, and we do own small cap for clients in a diversified way. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting leverage of the economy through small caps. They've, they've had a big run. I think if you look at them on a relative value basis to large cap, there's an argument to be made that there's more upside ahead. If you back the aperture out a little bit more, Frank, you can look at the top in 2018 for small caps. We're just now getting above that top in the third quarter, which was really based on the trade war at that time. So small caps are something you can and should own. Now, I think the other area, these epicenter stocks, our issue there is it's speculation, not investment. Sure, you know, Carnival Cruise Lines could go up 30, 40, 50 percent. But then what? Is that really a business that you want to own two, three and five years in the portfolio on a fundamental merit? Or is that just a trade? And we're not traders. We're investors. Stick with high quality, durable cash flow streams. Great businesses that you want to own over the next five years. And that's the way that we're positioning the portfolio. All right, Jason, we're from Albion Financial. We appreciate it. Thank you again. All right, Thanks. turning now to the highs, uh, excuse me, the housing market. Couldn't even get it out because I got a lot of questions for Diana Olick. The rate shock risk is not only front and center on Wall Street, but it's also half of a double whammy facing the housing market, just as the all-important spring season is about to begin. Diana Olick joins us now with the very latest. Hey, Diana. Hey, Frank. Yeah, March is upon us, but this spring's housing market is now shaping up to be the leanest and most competitive ever. About 207,000 fewer homes were newly listed for sale during the first two months of this year, compared with the average for that time period over the last four years. And that's according to a new report from Realtor.com. Add that to the already lean supply of listings going into this year, and there are now half as many homes for sale compared with a year ago. Some of that was due to extreme weather in the South, snow and ice conditions that left people without power and water, but that was not all of it. If you look locally, the biggest drops in new listings were in Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Missouri, and Milwaukee, but drops were pretty widespread. There were a few markets with gains, namely San Jose, California, San Francisco, and Denver. Now, with demand still high for housing and supply continuing to plummet to new record lows, prices have nowhere to go but up. The median price in January was up over 10 percent year over year, according to CoreLogic. And now mortgage rates are gaining steam again. They jumped at the fastest pace in over a year last week. Took a breather to start this week. And then after the Fed chairman's comments on inflation yesterday, they just turned higher again. So welcome to spring. The best bet now is on the home builders, but their costs are rising and they're just going to pass that right on to the buyers, Frank. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants to hear that, Diana. Uh, so I have to ask you, I know you said it wasn't the whole story, but if some of the drop in listings was due to weather, 
Won't those listings come on the market now and make up for it? Some of them absolutely will. And so we'll see that because that was a problem just in those two months. But the issue now becomes with higher mortgage rates. How many people who have a rate of, you know, in the 2% range or the 3% range are going to say, oh, you know, rates are now moving higher. Now's the time to put my house on the market? Probably not. And in addition to that, because we had such an incredible year in 2020 for home sales, a lot of demand was pulled forward because of the pandemic. So those people who might have sold this spring already sold last summer. So, again, a lot of issues going into this spring. So, Dan, I got to ask you a personal question uh, about refis. I actually waited too long, I think, to refi my place. Uh, I got told by the broker, man, if you did it six weeks ago, you got a deal and a half. How are refis looking going forward with these rising rates? Well, look, it depends on where you are, right? Most people are below 4% at this point because rates have been low for so long. But if you can shave 75 basis points, even maybe 50 to 75 basis points off the rate you currently have, so if you're at, you know, 4.5% and you can get to 375 that's still great. Or if you can get to three and a half from 4.25, you're still saving a little bit of money and every penny these days is worth it, especially when you're looking at the higher costs of housing. So you're not completely lost unless you're in the 2% range and forget it. Well, thanks for trying to make me feel better, Diana. I'd like to save a lot of money, not just a little bit, but I appreciate the kind of words. All right. Diana Oleg, thanks for the very latest. Coming up, bringing back the big screen. Movie theaters in New York City, they can begin to reopen today with restrictions. We're going to talk to one cinema chain coming up next. But first, as we head to break, some of your other top stories this morning. GM is looking to build a second battery factory in the U.S. with its joint venture partner, LG Chem. The Wall Street Journal says the companies are close to choosing Tennessee as the location. Shutterfly is reportedly in talks to go public again, this time through a SPAC deal. The online photo company was taken private by Apollo Global less than two years ago. And the new Buzz ETF dropping in its trading debut, the Vanek Vector Social Sentiment ETF has 75 stocks in it and aims to give investors exposure to stocks that are frequently talked about on social media platforms like Reddit and Twitter. Much more from Worldwide Exchange coming up. Stay with us. And welcome back. Let's get a check on some of the stocks on the move today. Shares of Gap rising more than 4% higher, despite posting weaker-than-expected sales in its latest quarter. That's because investors appear to be focusing on the retailer's upbeat forecast. Gap says it expects to return to sales growth this year. Boeing fractionally higher, and is said to be looking for another $4 billion of liquidity from banks. Bloomberg reports the playmaker has approached a group of banks for a new revolving credit facility. And check out shares of Trade Desks, not a name that we talk about very often, but it's a $30 billion ad tech company and its stock. It's dropping again this morning. Shares fell more than 20 percent between Tuesday and yesterday after Google clarified its ad tracking policy, saying it will not use tech that follows people individually across the Internet. All right. Turning now to the movie business, a major milestone in the Big Apple movie theaters in New York City. They can reopen today for the first time since March albeit with some restrictions, 25% capacity or about 50 people per screen. The move comes almost after a year of theaters having to stay closed, with many studios moving their blockbusters to streaming services instead. 
For more on the reopening and what's at stake, let's bring in Joe Masher, Chief Operating Officer of Bowtie Cinemas, also the president of the National Association of Theater Owners of New York. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. So I have to ask you, with the reopening of New York City movie theaters, what does that mean for the movie business? And what does that 25% capacity mean for your business? Well, it means a lot worldwide. It means that studios will be able to keep their movies uh, on the calendar and not send them direct to streaming. So we'll have, you know, theaters open in major markets. We're still waiting for Los Angeles, but we anticipate that, you know, in the next few weeks, hopefully. Um, And we are uh, hopeful that May's calendar will stay intact and uh, that, you know, we'll be able to show blockbuster movies in theaters with some window of exclusivity again. Uh, As far as capacity goes, 25% 25% is not great to start off. Um, if you think of a traditionally seated auditorium with 200 seats, 25% of that is 50 people. So that's fine. But most auditoriums now have been retrofitted with luxury recliner seating. So if you take that same auditorium, you lost about 60% of your seats by installing the recliners. You're now down to about 80 seats in the auditorium or about 20 people at 25%. So we've asked the governor's office to increase the capacity of the re- luxury recliner auditoriums to 50% a little bit more of an equitable balance. Yeah, Joe, obviously that 25, 25% capacity impacts your business today. But in general, yeah. you mentioned that it's a lot of theaters have shifted to those luxury recliners. You have less capacity, period, than you would have in the past. Also, yeah. those studios, they generally give you like a 75 to 90 day window to get those movies in the theaters first. If you have so many fewer people in the theaters, are you worried that this business model could change completely? Because look at today uh, on Amazon Prime, Coming to America 2 is coming out. I would imagine that would have been in the theaters if not for the pandemic. Are you worried that more and more of this business is going to go to streaming? I think more and more of it's going to actually come back to exhibition. Studios know that the best way they they can recoup their investment on their, you know, multi hundreds of millions of dollars that they put into a movie is to have an exclusive theatrical run. You know, Coming to America 2 was sold for a lot of money during the time of a pandemic. And, you know, the Warner Brothers model certainly of streaming everything on HBO Max uh, we're told as a pandemic model. Uh, I don't think we'll ever go back, uh, unfortunately, to the 75 to 90 day exclusivity window. But, you know, I think something more in the 45 to 60 range would be acceptable to both parties. I think there's going to have to be some compromise uh, on both uh, both studios and exhibitors. All right. Around the nation, there's about 90,000 movie theater workers. So a lot of people are being impacted by this. Also, it has a wider impact on Main Street businesses. In your opinion, what happens if movie theaters can't reopen their business or at least begin to reopen their business more normally? Does it impact the other areas? It sure does. I mean, movie theaters, restaurants and retail are all codependent on each other. Um, so, you know, in small towns, you can have a, a nice old theater that, that's the anchor. Downtown. If that goes, you certainly see uh, a lot of the restaurants around it um, not surviving and some retail shops also not being able to survive. So they're really all codependent on each other. Um, you know, people are still looking for a night out and movie theaters provide it safely. Our cinema safe protocols have, you know, led us to uh, still not have one single case of uh, coronavirus traced to a movie theater worldwide, not one. So let's talk about some movies that are coming out today and also coming up. Uh, Fast and Furious 9. I'm actually a big fan of that franchise. The studio decided to move the release date from May to a few weeks later. And then on the other side, Disney, instead of putting uh, Raya and the Dragon, it's a kid's movie. I'm not that familiar with it. But uh, they're putting on Disney Plus instead of putting in the theaters. As a theater operator, what's your take on these two decisions? Well, Raya is going on Disney Plus premium, so it's available uh, for a fee to stream at home. But it is also in theaters starting today. Um, so unlike Tom and Jerry, which opened last week to actually a, a pretty decent gross, um, you know, for, for these times, uh, Raya has a premium carried to it. So we think more people will come to theaters to see Raya. 
Um, you know, with the furious move, I, I understand that that decision was made because the UK will be open by then. Um, you know, they're looking for most major markets to be open. New York is certainly a giant step in getting that done. Uh, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., the UK, those are our next targets. So theater stocks, they've actually been up over the last month. I'm looking at IMAX and some of the other big theater chains uh, in the U.S. internationally. Do you feel confident that the theater business is going to get back to where it was before the pandemic in 2021, or is it going to change permanently? I think it's going to get back to where it was. I don't know that it'll be in 2021, maybe by Christmas time. Um, I think certainly as more people are vaccinated and they're comfortable with the experience we provide, they'll see that, you know, we're uh, we're a very safe place to go. And, you know, movie going has been part of the fabric of America uh, since 1905, the first Nickelodeon. And, you know, there have been threats to our industry many over the years. First was, of course, television and then cable television and then home video and, and, you know, everything like that. And then now streaming. But, you know, we're still here. Uh, we will survive and we'll be back better than ever. Well, Joe, I'm a big fan of the movies. I'm wishing you and other theater owners and theater workers the very best. And let's hope the vaccine allows you to resume your business as normal. Good luck. Thank All you. right. Thanks on deck, much. what senators are trying to tuck into the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill just days before a possible full chamber vote. And if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, just go ahead and do it. If you miss Worldwide Exchange or Big Papa Brian Sullivan, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps, and we will be right back. And welcome back. As the Senate prepares for a possible weekend vote on the $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus bill, it is prime time for 11th hour deal making and horse trading to get that bill over the finish line. Our own Alan Moy breaks down one such deal being brokered right now as we speak. Good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Frank. The Senate has finally released the text of that COVID relief bill. It is 628 pages long. Lawmakers are tweaking it right up until the last minute. And one thing they tucked in there was Subtitle H, Section 9708, a provision to limit what the bill calls excessive executive pay. Now, it would prevent publicly traded companies from deducting compensation for their highest paid employees if they make over a million dollars. Now, currently, this rule already applies to the top five executives at a company. The COVID relief bill would expand that to the top 10. Now, this seems like a small change that only affects a few people, and it wouldn't even take effect until 2027. But it's projected to raise $8 billion over just a few years. That is a lot of money from a very tiny pool of people, but it serves an important function. The COVID package includes nearly $31 billion to shore up pension funds over the next decade. Now, that wasn't in President Biden's original framework for the bill, and Democrats needed a way to offset the cost. Taxing executive pay is a politically easy fix, Frank, and it's just one example of that last-minute bartering that happens in Washington when legislation gets down to the wire. Back to you. Number one, I know you read every page of that 628-page uh, bill. I know you did. Uh, what's next in the process overall for that bill? Yeah, well, we got to hear the clerk read all 628 <laughs> pages overnight, Frank. You just finished at something like 2 o'clock in the morning. So what happens next is the Senate will come back into session at 9 a.m. They'll have three hours of additional debate over the bill, and then they'll move into Voterama, where there could be additional changes to the bill as both parties offer amendments to sort of tailor the bill to uh, any sort of particular issue that they see needs to be changed. Hopefully there will be a final vote on this sometime this weekend. Let's hope it doesn't drag into next week as well. (laughs) 
So any other last minute changes that seem more likely than other changes? Yeah, there were already some tweaks that were made to the bill beyond this limit on executive pay, including ensuring that student loans wouldn't be taxed, any student loan relief isn't taxed. There were also additional guardrails put on there for the way that money for education could be spent. They also changed the way that state and local funding is done in the bill so that smaller states, states with rural populations or not as many people in them, are ensured that they have at least as much funding as they got in the CARES Act. So what you see is they want to make sure that every senator sort of has a say and is able to go back to their constituents and declare a win. But sometimes that does result, Frank, in some sort of messy policy. I would imagine. I would imagine. All right, Alain Moy with the very latest on a very late night in D.C. We appreciate it. Well, turning back to the markets, they're facing another potential pressure point today following yesterday's sell-off, which was triggered in part by Fed Chair Jay Powell's comments on rising bond yields. The February jobs report, it's out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. Employers, they likely stepped up hiring last month with estimates for an increase of 210,000 in non-farm payrolls. Your next guest, he expects a number well below the consensus, but says that would be actually inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Tom Porcelli is the chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital Markets. Good morning, Tom. Hey, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you. So your estimate is 100,000 lower than the consensus. How do you think the markets will react if your estimate turns out to be true? How do you think they should react? Yeah, so actually, I think we're we're lower than that. We're we're looking for a decline of 100,000. And uh, so that's probably a few hundred thousand below consensus. Yeah, look, I, I think that, you know, this is one of these reports that you really want to look through, uh, you know, uh, from from our perspective. This is really more of a, a technical um, uh, factor that's that's playing out here today. It's just a high seasonal hurdle. The, 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 without getting into too much detail and boring the, the, uh, everyone um, to tears, I, I think the reality is last month there was a, a really favorable seasonal hurdle. That's why we actually saw an increase. This month, we're um, going to see a, a much higher seasonal hurdle. It means we're going to see a decline. I think it, all that aside, I think the reality is once we turn the light switch back on uh, from an economic perspective, you know, we'll get back to the business of, of, of gaining jobs. Um, but we're going to have to get through this tough one first. All right. Back to the 10 year. Goldman Sachs and TD yeah. Securities out with a new 2021 year end forecast calling for yields to hit between 1.9 and 2 percent by December. Now, in its note, Goldman says, while we think there will be some near term consolidation, We believe strong economic data will lead yields to resume their upward trajectory in the coming quarters, and we therefore revise up our projections. Tom, a lot to digest there. What's your take on this? Look, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. When we were putting out, probably like everyone else, when we were putting out our year-ahead forecast, you know, we envisioned yields would would rise really across the curve. Um, We thought that the process would be much slower, and I think in fairness to us, you know, we have a pretty constructive view on the backdrop. I mean, I think anyone who knows our research well knows that, you know, we've been probably a lot more constructive than most other uh, um, um, folks out there. But I think for us, when we built in sort of more of a, um, a gradual increase in tens, the, the rationale behind that was, look, the economic backdrop would allow for yields to rise um, fairly significantly. We just didn't think everyone would embrace the idea that you're going to get strong growth and strong inflation this early in the year. Um, you know, we, um, uh, you know, d- despite the fact that we had been thinking that for quite some time, we just thought that the market would embrace it much more slowly. So, you know, we're sympathetic to the rise uh, in yields. Uh, again, we've also had to adjust our forecast by, for the end of the year. Uh, and so while I think that there's obviously some, um, well, maybe it's not obvious, but while I think there's some additional lift in 10-year yields, I would actually say that I think the, the, the real heavy lifting at this point is probably in the front end of the curve. Because I think you have to keep in mind, 
while it's true that uh, you know if the market's building in more uh, inflation, more growth, yes, that should obviously allow um, uh, you know tenure yields should rise in sympathy with that view. But the the natural next extension of that idea is oh well the Fed is going to respond sooner. Um, and so when that idea starts to really sort of gather a bit of momentum, which seemingly it, it's starting to gain a little bit of momentum, that means that the, it, you're going to allow the front end of the curve to really release. So you can see two-year yields, 50 basis points are higher by the end of the year. Particularly, and sorry, let, let me just make this last point. Particularly if it is true that this will then mean that the Fed actually has to start the process of tapering before the end of the year and that, you know, 22 uh, the real conversation there is, hey, you know, is the Fed actually going to wind up hiking uh, um, next year? So, Tom, let's get back to your estimate. As you just corrected me, and I appreciate that, 100,000 uh, jobs lost, actually, in February. Yeah. What data or trends are you seeing that's leading you to that estimate? And is this the floor of the job market in 2021? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, as w- w- the, the right way of thinking about um, uh, the payroll report today, or, you know, today meaning like sort of this period, is really you want to look at um, initial jobless claims or, or continuing claims, really, um, survey week to survey week. And when you when you do that from sort of the January survey week to the February survey week, because, of course, this is a February report, um, what you see is that there was uh, uh, really they were actually uh, fairly flat. Um, and so in that context, once you apply the seasonal adjustment um, factor, uh, it winds up giving you this this modest decline. Um, in terms of, you know, do we think that this is the last of it? Yeah, you know, it probably is. I mean, look, it's not like I think, you know, job growth is going to start roaring back next month. Um, I, I think, you know, we're going to have to wait for things to really start to gather a bit more momentum. But I, I would say it this way. Um, w- whenever it happens, whether it's in, in the next month or, or in the next couple of months, I would say by the end of the year, you're probably looking at a dynamic where you're pretty darn close to full employment in the United States. So are you saying that you actually see unemployment going back to that February 2020 level of three and a half percent? And if so, well, so what sectors no, do you no, see no, coming that, back first? Yeah, that was a great that, that's a great follow up question. So, no, that we were wildly below uh, full employment um, when when uh, back before the pandemic. So full employment is probably somewhere between five and five and a half percent. So we, we see uh, uh, the U.S. economy getting back to, you know, again, what we would define as full employment by the end of the year. All right, Tom Porcelli, thanks for the insight. We appreciate it as always. Thanks so much. Turning back to the markets, we're approaching the top of the hour. Let's get a really quick check at where we stand. Futures pointing to a lower open across the board. We're seeing right now the Dow looking like it's going to open about 19, excuse me, 32 points lower if this trend continues. Names leading the Dow lower, Salesforce, Caterpillar, Dow, and Disney. Tech has been a huge part of this story, hit hard by rising yields. NASDAQ losers this morning, Broadcom, Skyworks, Costco, eBay, and Tesla. We're seeing right now Tesla down big. And speaking of Tesla, that's a big reason behind the drop in Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF. It's become a much-talked-about ETF, and it's now in the red for 2021. The fund has dropped 24% from its all-time high, including a 5% drop yesterday, wiping out almost $23 billion in gains it had seen since the start of the year. All right, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 